0: Hi friends, welcome back to another episode of Peer Connections, the podcast series brought to you by the Global Peer Financing Association, also known as GPFA. These podcasts offer our GPFA members and Global Beneficial Owner friends a forum for information sharing and discussion on topics most important to them. And we hope you, our listeners, appreciate the insights, best practices, and transparency offered from our members and industry friends about securities, finance, or related investment areas. Now let's get into the episode. Welcome back to the Peer Connections Podcast, part of the GPFA. We're here today to discuss an extension of the discussion that was started a few weeks back on indemnification. My name is Chris Benish. I'm a portfolio manager here at the State of Wisconsin Investment Board. And joining me today are Matt Burnett from Nordisk Bank and Jerry May from Ohio PERS. Matt and Jerry, do you guys want to
1: take a minute to introduce yourselves? Sure. Hi, Matt Burnett, Global Head of Financing. We run an unindemnified securities lending program through an agent lender. Hi, I'm Jerry May. I am a senior portfolio manager at Ohio PERS. Our
2: program is run through an agent lender and we do have indemnification. We're involved with not only the lending portion of the program but we also manage all of the cash collateral as well. Thanks guys and thanks for joining us today.
0: So this discussion was really prompted in part by a white paper that was released by Mark Faulkner earlier last year called Something Better Change, Securities, Lending, indemnification is Unsustainable in Its Current Form. It's triggered some interesting discussion, I think, amongst beneficial owners, particularly as we saw in the last podcast between Mark and Matt. And I think what we wanted to do was continue to extend that discussion, bring in a few more voices and viewpoints. So thanks for being here today. Maybe by way of introduction, just wanted to touch briefly on what we mean by indemnification in this context. So in a securities lending transaction, I think as many of you know, there is a situation that may occur where a borrower may fail to return the securities that they have borrowed. And if that were to happen and the collateral that's being held is insufficient, Oftentimes, the agent will step up and indemnify that transaction and make the lender whole. And that's what we're really talking about here when we talk about indemnification and what might be changing in the industry. In the last podcast, Matt, you talked a lot about your view and your relationship to indemnification. And maybe just by way of recapping a little bit, you could share a little bit more, Matt, about how you guys view indemnification, how you use it today.
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Chris. So I'll try not to repeat myself too much here and try to touch on a few different points. But one thing is I think there's some principles that we thought about along the way. And when I say along the way, this is a process that takes time to go from an indemnified program to being comfortable to managing risk yourself. The first is that the agent lender's indemnification or their balance sheet may get in the way of your own strategy. So an agent lender has to find trades and risk that works for all of their clients, not just you yourself. So that's something to consider and something we considered. And it's also worth thinking about what is indemnification actually worth? So when we took this conversation, it was more of most of the agents are banks and most of your counterparties are banks. So the credit quality of your agent lender and their ability to indemnify you is probably pretty highly correlated with the borrowers they're looking to indemnify. So one of the things is if you are indemnified, it may be worth assessing your agent's ability to cover that indemnification. How much are they indemnifying I think is a fair question. What types of trades are they indemnifying outside of you? So beyond putting in analytics, databases, trading competency, etc., there's a few things that sort of have to scope how you think about risk rather than just how do you transact when that default does happen one of our core principles was we didn't want to outsource risk management. And that carries forward to this day when we think about things like CCPs, et cetera. But we'll save that conversation for another time. So, but critically, even if there are very few defaults in this industry, there's still a lot of decisions that you have to make on a regular basis in an unidentified program, you know, around counterparts, around collateral types, et cetera. You can think of a few large European PBs that aren't prime brokers anymore that had some close calls in the last few years. So, you have to decide how you want to treat that counterparty going forward, what type of collateral you want to take. But I think my biggest point is I don't think we're that special when you point to unidentified lenders. There's most of our peers, listening to previous podcasts, yourselves included, run large reinvestment programs that are also unindemnified. So I think the average beneficial owner is quite used to managing risk, and this is really just a different type of risk that we're looking to manage. Thanks, Matt. And, you
0: know, without maybe belaboring too much of some of the details in the white paper, it's, you know, I think one thing that Faulkner lays out pretty well is the regulatory cost of this indemnification has gone up, right? At the same time, general collateral prices have gone down. And so what that really means, and I think what you alluded to, is the economics of these trades have changed. And so given that, there's sort of a few different paths that the market can take. And I think what we want to unpack here today is maybe which of these might be likely, what some of the unintended consequences are. And so from my perspective, what I see is a few different possibilities. One, the trade becomes status quo, nothing changes, but the economics change in favor of the agent. As you said, those agents that are facilitating these trades have to come up with trades that make sense from an economics perspective. And so the current fee split situation may be such that the economics just aren't tenable given the indemnification cost increases in the lower GC pricing. The other possibility is that the price of GC lending goes up. It's a more expensive trade, so it does make sense possibly to consider increasing the price of the general collateral lending. Another possibility is a differentiated pricing model. This is where indemnified or unindemnified loans are priced differently depending on what the borrower is willing to engage in. And finally, it's possible, and some beneficial owners have been approached on this, that some beneficial owners may choose to forego indemnification. And certainly, Matt, you're an example of an entity that's made that decision. And that might be on all their trades or it might be on a portion of their securities lending activity. So in order to expand this perspective and dig in a little bit more on some of these questions, and some of these questions that many market participants may be facing in the near future from their agents, Jerry, maybe you could share a little bit about your program, your structure, and how you guys view indemnification.
2: Sure. So our program is fully indemnified. From our agent lender. Our agent lender uses external insurance to indemnify the program. They are not a GSIB. That might actually be, Chris, a fifth path potentially, is that there may be some lenders out there that are available to beneficial owners where indemnification may not be as costly. And so business may switch over to them if the beneficial owner is still intent on receiving indemnification. And that may include external insurance policies. It may be non-bank lending agents, non-G-SIBs, et cetera. And I think that that really is an option that we've looked at with our indemnification as well. When, When we were examining the benefits or the risks associated with indemnification, one of the things that we did consider is the lending agent, whether it's a bank broker, whoever, is the lending agent able to pay? should a borrower default and they have a trillion dollars on loan, can they still pay for the indemnification that they're offering? That was a significant concern to us. And so we decided to go with the agent lender that we're currently with, where they have an external insurance policy. And we think that that diversifies risk in that regard as well. That's just a general overview.
0: Thanks, Jerry. And in the interest of full disclosure, we have a couple different lending agents, one of whom offers indemnification through an insurance policy. The other is a G-SIB that sort of self-indemnifies activities that we're engaged in. So we kind of approach it from both of those directions, but we do have an indemnified program. I think that if we think about the economics of maybe GC lending in particular, right? Path one or two that I had mentioned before, either the economics change in favor of the agent or the price of GC lending goes up. In my mind, those are linked. In general, it's recognizing that this activity is more expensive, but the question is who should bear that cost? Should it be the borrower or should it be the lender in order to facilitate those trades? Matt, do you have any views on which
1: outcome seems more likely? Yeah, we touched on it a bit, Mark and I, previously, and I a bit clumsily tried to throw some statistics out there to try to think about the scale of these transactions. We looked at the S&P data and we came up with $960 of defining GC as anything 25 basis points or below. And of that 960 billion, the weighted average fee is 13 basis points. That's not a lot. That's a pretty thin margin. So the premise or my very short version of Mark's paper is the low margin trades are unsustainable because they're unprofitable from the perspective of the agent if they're indemnifying it. So if you're running an unprofitable business, there's not a whole lot you can do. They have to move the pendulum the other way to start increasing prices and ultimately that comes down to prime brokers and their hedge fund clients paying more to borrow those same types of stocks and ultimately of course that can mean less liquidity and it can mean that with those higher fees that maybe some of the trading strategies that they were previously transacting are no longer profitable but at the end of the day, that you have to find a way with your four scenarios for the agent to have profitable transactions because obviously it's unsustainable for them to continue to fund losses. And Jerry, how about you? Any thoughts?
2: I would agree with what Matt said there. That's 100% accurate. If you're going to be charged from a regulatory standpoint, cost of balance sheet usage makes total sense that you're going to have to be compensated somehow. So whether that's from the borrower side or from the beneficial owner sides, it's an unsustainable model as it's currently structured.
1: This is essentially where Mark and I finally disagreed. We agreed on way too much on the previous podcast, Mm -hmm. but we disagreed on what would happen here. He had a strong opinion that pricing wouldn't change, that for the most part, unidentified beneficial owners would use this as an opportunity to kind of hoover up those balances at the same price, or that banks would find another way to arbitrage lenders to keep their costs down. My view is that whether or not there's enough capacity for unidentified lenders to take those you know, nearly trillion dollars in balances potentially, I think people that run an unidentified programs think a lot about risk and they wanna be paid for it at the end of the day. And 13 basis points probably isn't enough if you start thinking about the cost of risk, operational risk, as well as investment risk and counterparty risk. And what is your vote worth at the end of the day? That probably gets you pretty close to 13 basis points, I would guess.
0: Certainly, and I think if we see that split, right, between indemnified and unindemnified lenders, does that trigger over-consolidation of those lenders? And does some of that risk become sort of untenable? In thinking about a future where maybe there is differentiated pricing, you have some lenders lending an indemnified program, some lending in unindemnified. What do you guys feel are maybe some of the other unintended consequences of that kind of scenario?
2: One of which being concentration either on the lender or the borrower side. Jerry, any thoughts? I think you're exactly right. There's going to be some concentration issues there. But one of the things that I think may result from that is that there may actually be more directed lending toward peers. And that's because peers, they're not rated typically by one of the NRSROs. They do have a strong track record. You have a lot of runway that you can tell if there are issues with a pension fund or an insurance company or whatever. So, I think peers may be the way that a lot of people start directing business just because you have a little more comfort in watching a counterparty that's a little safer than maybe a traditional banker or broker might be.
0: And I certainly wouldn't argue that peers tend to be a better credit overall than maybe some more traditional counterparties. I just wonder if, in an unindemnified world where peers are not rated and you don't have that sort of safety blanket, if they become in some ways, a less desirable counterparty because there isn't that
2: additional layer of security there. Certainly possible. If you're just relying on the credit rating agencies, then yeah, I would totally
1: agree with you. Chris, what do you think some of the unintended consequences might be? Well, I feel like maybe there certainly a number of beneficial owners I've
0: talked to feel that, Indemnification is table stakes for securities lending. It absolutely is required, whether that's from a governance standpoint, it's just not something their boards are willing to go without, or from a practical standpoint, that they're just not able to achieve the kind of analysis and depth of oversight that's needed to run an undemnified program. We may have some beneficial owners that exit lending entirely. And I think that would be an unfortunate outcome because when you have fewer lenders out there, and you have the sort of borrower concentration that we may see, that reduction in market
1: liquidity, I think, affects everybody. So that's one of the things that I would be worried about. Yeah, but I wonder if should lenders lend at any price? So I think regulation has a purpose. And the purpose of that is to force banks or people that are underwriting these risks to manage those risks. And one of the things that I've certainly observed in the last, call it five or six years, is risk has changed but the way the industry has managed risk hasn't really changed that much so if you look at 2022 i think we probably agree that it was a bit of a different year from 2021 volatility in equity markets increased volatility in fixed income markets definitely increased all our counterparty cds's are much higher than they were the previous year Yet, I don't think the industry made changes to their collateral portfolios, their haircuts, et cetera. So that seems odd to me that we don't recognize that in either pricing or our risk management. That doesn't seem like a very well-functioning market to me. You know, Matt, I think you're right. And one of the things I think this
0: industry in particular, and those of us that have been in it for a while recognize is the momentum of this industry is tough to overcome sometimes. There are many things that Securities finance market does that, it becomes difficult to sort of escape our own historical patterns and momentum. And so, this is a perfect example where the market's always operated one way and it becomes difficult for people to think about it differently. I hope, though, that while the regulation has the effect of getting people to consider what the real costs are of these transactions, for me, it comes down to who pays that cost, right? And so, I come down on the side of I think the borrower should pay that cost, but. You know, it's a nuanced
2: discussion and consideration that needs to be taken into account. I think Matt hit on something that was pretty interesting there. He hit on the idea that there could be a place for dynamic haircut. And I don't think that's something that the industry at large has considered, but I think it does make a lot of sense. Dynamic haircuts will reflect not only the credit of the counterparty, but it would reflect market dynamics as well. So, that is something that probably you could really differentiate yourself in a number of ways, whether you're willing to take the lower haircut to make a little more money. Or if you want the higher haircut, you're not as worried about having as much cash to manage, things like that. So, I think there's something there that should be investigated further.
0: Do you think dynamic haircuts are more palatable than dynamic pricing? I think they would be for the beneficial
2: owner, actually. Yeah.
1: The interesting part is dynamic haircuts, dynamic collateral or risk management is the essence of prime brokers risk management versus their hedge fund. So they have that in place, they can control it. We're limited for some practical reasons, some historical to TriParty and how quickly you can change schedules within there. So I totally agree with you, Jerry. That would be the holy grail for myself. It would take some serious development by the TriParty agents. One thing I'd like to ask you gents, Chris, you mentioned there were four potential paths where this could go. I'd like to suggest a fifth and see what you guys think about it. If we think about that, the agent has to find a way to have some profit from these small margin transactions. One way that I can think of that you guys both mentioned you're involved in is to increase the cash reinvestment piece. So you could move some of those GC transactions, and I tried to look this up beforehand. So of our $960 billion, and I'm still looking back to November here for consistency, a little over half of that are about $540 billion is collateralized with non-cash securities. So intuitively, all things being equal, you could probably move more of those to cash-based transactions and then take your risk through the reinvestment, which the agent doesn't indemnify. Is that something that you could see happening? I know for
0: our program, we tend to use our cash in ways other than cash reinvestment. So we use securities lending as a way to raise cash to fund other activities within the fund, whether it's liquidity management or leverage, things like that. But the points well will that that may be a path forward for some. Jerry,
2: have you guys considered that? Yeah, I mean, we're managing all of our cash and we do it for multiple reasons. But there are times that I think the market lends itself to lending out securities For the purpose of getting cash because there's a sufficient spread there that you can generate over the course of a year or whatever so yeah i I think there are definitely multiple strategies that could be used on the cash side to enhance return that you may be forfeiting on an indemnification basis yeah so this
0: is interesting in that it highlights sort of the interconnected nature of all of these kinds of transactions right and so as we're thinking through and as the beneficial owners are considering indemnification or non-indemnification, in my mind, it comes down to more than just a willingness to accept that tail risk that a borrower defaults, right? When we think about what the indemnification is actually worth, people talk about, you have a highly rated credit counterparty that's borrowing the security. You have an overcollateralized transaction. And so at the end of the day, even if the borrower was to default. What are the chances that that collateral is not going to be sufficient, right? That's a very a small risk that we're indemnifying for. But from my perspective as a beneficial owner, indemnification goes beyond that, right? There's a alignment of interest that takes place between the lender and the agent that indemnification helps facilitate and sort of holds them accountable to managing that program in a way that that's prudent. As you guys think through your programs, and Matt, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what are some other things that beneficial owners need to think about if they were to choose to forgo indemnification in terms of how their program should be structured in order to make that choice?
1: Yeah, sure. The only thing that I'm worried about is really catastrophic risk. So if I want indemnification, I want the agent to cover billions of dollars in losses, not millions of dollars in losses. So these are small probability, super high impact events and as i kind of started with earlier i don't know because of the core the agents tend to be in the same type of business as our counterparties i don't know if they're going to be good for that and i don't know much about insurance but i would think the insurance has some upper limit as well i'm really thinking about tail events because i would agree that in general this is a low risk low return investment strategy but to answer your questions you have to To move to that unidentified world, you have to own that risk. You have to own every part of that risk, and you ultimately have to be able to trade that risk at the end of the day. So if you're accepting some type of collateral because it has a higher yield, you have to be able to take ownership of that and have the infrastructure and the competency to trade that at the end of the day. And I think, as I said before, most of us have to make that step, have to go in front of a board at the end of the day to get approval for that. And I think you either have to sell this product as we will never make a loss, in which case you have to say our haircuts are sufficient to cover any type of event, or we're making enough revenue from these spreads to cover future losses. And at 13 basis points and 5% haircuts, I don't think most of us could make those statements. So
0: in a world without indemnification, are there some lenders. My fear is there
1: are many lenders that will not be able to make that leap. I would agree with that. If you look at it outside of identification, it's not a real sexy business, right? These spreads are pretty small. And I think you can compare that to other lending businesses where you might struggle to make a business case if you tried to start over again and say, hey, I think securities lending is a really good idea. We can make 13 basis point margins. But as you said, the momentum of the industry has pulled us with it, and here we are.
0: Any other thoughts on where this discussion goes next or other opportunities for lenders to consider as this
2: conversation evolves? This has probably been said, honestly, for the last 10 to 20 years. The future is in multiple routes to market. Maybe 10 or 20 years ago, that meant that you're going to lend through an agent, maybe lend through a custodian, maybe do some self-lending. Today, I think it means that you're thinking more in terms of holistically managing liquidity and pricing, having the ability to assess which paths can be managed efficiently, where one can readily transact, and then determining the best price available. That's really the next step for beneficial owners. Some are already doing that. I think Matt might be in that category, but for those that have always viewed securities lending as just offsetting custody fees, or it's just a back office operation, that's a huge leap forward. And I'm not sure that there's a lot of appetite yet from traditional U.S. pension funds, at least to make that leap. Matt, do
0: you think the traditional agents are prepared to help facilitate that transition that Jerry outlined?
1: I think in a way they have to, but that's not a short-term solution. So their business model is on the line. These trades again are unsustainable for them as Mark showed us in his paper. They have to find a way to do something. So in the short term, an easy solution is raise pricing or raise minimum fees. Just say we can't indemnify. or as you said earlier, one of your paths, you can differentiate and just say these low margin trades, sorry, we can't help you there but we can identify the higher margin trades. But yeah, in the longer run, I think they have experts in risk management. They've been doing this a long time. They understand it. they can help put in those processes, but I think we should be thinking of, to Jerry's point, years, not months. This isn't a 2023 where we all decide we can just manage all this risk ourselves in-house.
0: Agreed. And I think this much is clear. This conversation will continue to evolve and will be ongoing, I think, as we all see what comes next. I want to thank you, Matt and Jerry, for joining us today. Thanks for the discussion. Thanks for your viewpoints. And for those of you listening, if you want to follow up with any one of us, feel free to contact GPFA, reach out with questions, and as well as ideas for future podcasts. We would love to get more voices involved in the conversation and hearing what's on everybody's mind. So thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Peer Connections by GPFA. We hope you found the information shared in this podcast interesting and beneficial. And as always, please feel free to reach out to GPFA with ideas or interests for future episodes. And if you liked what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now for the disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of their respective employer organizations. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal, tax, or investment advice. There's no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions
1: based on this information.